So, I'm going to read a little bit from the uh, 12 and 12, the so-called 12 and 12, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, Bill Wilson's commentary on the 12 Steps and the 12 Traditions. Step 10, uh, this is October, and those who have attended before know that I uh, usually do something uh, that's related to the step of the month. I, I don't have a lot on that subject tonight, but I, I was reading this this afternoon. It's, o- it's always good for me. I have to say that being a teacher is helpful for me because it makes me read things so that I can have something to say to people. It is a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us in italics. If somebody hurts us and we are sore, we are in the wrong also. But are there no exceptions to this rule? What about, quote, justifiable, unquote, anger? If somebody cheats us, aren't we entitled to be mad? Can't we be properly angry with self-righteous folk? For us of AA, these are dangerous exceptions. We have found that justified anger ought to be left to those better qualified to handle it. Uh, It's certainly annoying, these ideas. But I guess that's the point. It's a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there's something wrong with us. You know, one of the challenges of, of these kind of ideas, of course, is that it doesn't turn into the inner critic. You know, that we don't use this stuff to beat ourselves up. But certainly uh, trying to find a balance between, you know, um, looking at um, how we've been harmed and how others have harmed us is, is really important. I mean... For myself, I think um, that I uh, I needed to learn to get angry. Actually, I kind of had to learn to get like I mean, just for instance, if you're you know dealing with some business and they're not being fair with you, or or, you know, or just you know the send the food back because it's not cooked properly stuff. I, I I had to learn to do that stuff in in recovery. Because I was so passive, and, and you know, I guess I don't know, passive aggressive. Certainly, there I know there was anger there, but uh, but I actually learned kind of from my wife <laughs> how to how to um, stand up for myself in a certain way. So, you know, it's I I often feel that there needs to be some balancing with some of the things I read in twelve step literature that because. The inventory process can turn into this inner critic stuff where you're just beating yourself up. And yet, you know, that if that's not, um, if we don't look at our own stuff, of course, we just wind up in this this state of blaming others uh, all the time. So so it's it's not so easy. Um, You know, and and I think that, you know, if, if I read this again. The, well, the, the second sentence, 
after the one, the spiritual axiom sentence. If somebody hurts us and we are sore, we are in the wrong also. So it's not to imply that others aren't in the wrong as well. Um, and and I think that what's I don't think the idea is to not be angry. I, that I think that's kind of like the Buddhist thing of like, oh, don't have desires. You know, it's just one of those like, come on. I mean, that's not human. The the question is what we do with those things. What what do we do with anger? What do we do with desire? Anger. You know, the you know the Tibetan prayer flags. They they represent different mind states. And one of them, and I don't know the details of this stuff, but one of them represents the, the um, mind state of, of anger or, or criticism, you know, being critical. And it, it's talking about the insight that comes from aversion. You know, when it's like, well, that's not right. You know, yeah, okay, there's some information there. And, and when we're angry, very often... There's a reason for it, right? I mean, sometimes it's just, you know, you're irritable, right? I mean, there's no doubt that, that uh, you know, crying babies or something, it's like, yeah, that's not really something that, um, you know, I need to go and tie up the kid. You know, that's not really... But, but there are many times when we're angry and there's a reason for it. And the thing is that because of, the, you know, the natural kind of emotional habits and probably maybe more true for addicts, uh, that's certainly the claim of Bill Wilson and others, rather than processing that and doing something skillful with it or useful with it, we just react to the emotion, to the feeling, act out on that. And that's what he's talking about because, of course, that sets off a string, a karmic string, right, where we're in conflict and that it comes back to us and, you know, we're feeling then our own uh, adrenaline and that, that rage, but also our own guilt and shame, you know, remorse afterwards, and, and that whole cycle happens that's so destructive that doesn't really lead anywhere good. But that's not the only thing you can do with anger, right? There's a lot of other things you can do with anger. I, I was just uh, watching a, a documentary about Pete Seeger uh, the other night, and you know, obviously he was pissed off about stuff, but, you know, the way he worked it out was he sang songs to try to transform people and try to raise their consciousness. Turns out, by the way, side, side thing, the, the first time Martin Luther King heard We Shall Overcome it was when Pete Seeger sang it at one of his events. And that's being really there at the, you know, the birth of something. Uh, anyway, um, and, you know, Martin Luther King, there's another example of somebody, he was angry, you know he was pissed off, uh, but what did he do with it? Uh, you know, so that, to me, is the challenge. It's not, oh, I should never get angry, you know, I should never have this. That's not helpful, you know, because there are many things we should be angry about. Quite a few of them going on right now in this country, actually, but anyway... And what, but the question is, how do we work with it? And, and that's where our practice and our program, I think especially our practice, can really help us. Because mindfulness itself 
is you know, one of the core principles of mindfulness is that we interrupt the process of reactivity. It's one of the key things that we learn in, in mindfulness meditation. And when we meditate, we are doing that in a very intentional way. You're sitting there, and no matter what comes up in your mind, you're not doing anything about it, you know, other than you know, thinking about it. But you're not able to get, go into a full-on reactive mode. So we're forced back on ourselves. Now, what we're trying to learn to do is develop the capacity to see the reaction rather than to be the reaction. Hey, you can quote me on that. That could go right into like Facebook right there. You know? <laughs> when we see the reaction, then we start to understand we can, I think most of the time we need to see through the reaction, the, the emotional, back into, oh, where's this coming from? What's this about? And so often, right, the anger, when we get behind it, it's, oh, that hurt me, or I felt fear. You know, usually, it's usually one or the other or both. When we express that to people, it's usually very disarming, you know. Um, but so, so that you know, the pause that refreshes. What is that commercial? Is that I don't know. It's like Pepsi or something. You know, commercials. There, you know, there's some genius in those guys, <laughs> Mad Men. You know, mindfulness is a pause that allows us to uh, take a space and see. Oh, there's this, but oh wait, oh right. And that then gives us the possibility of being angry, being really angry, you know, but not going into rage, not, not letting... Because anger isn't just an emotion. It's also, you know, it's also something that comes from the heart. It's also something that comes from the mind. There's, there's you know, more components to it than just the, that uh, emotional... Uh, rage that comes up. You know, I think that when uh, when Bill Wilson is talking in this way, one of the things he's trying to do is get us to pause and say, "Oh wait, what's going on? What uh, what does this have to do with me?" You know, and that's and that's the point. It's because when we can say that hurt or I was afraid or whatever was the feeling was behind it, we're not pointing at the other. We're not saying, you were wrong, you made me feel this way. Just that when you said that, I felt this. You know, when you did that, this is how I felt. Very different. So, uh, you know, again, I think that um, we have to be careful that... Uh, we come up trying to come up with simplistic answers. Uh, you know, oh, just don't. You know, we can't afford to be angry. Okay, well, I can't afford to not be angry either. You know, so that's not that's not an answer. Don't be angry. You know, or Buddhism is about letting go of desires. Well, Ajahn Sumedho says we live in a desire realm. We do, and desire. 
without desire, we don't, you won't breathe in. You desire, you breathe in because of the desire to stay alive. And if you don't, so if you don't have desire, you just fall over. I mean, you can choose that, but it's not very helpful for anybody. And then somebody's going to have to clean it up. At least go home before you do that. Well, I'm happy to take any uh, thoughts or reflections before I move on to the next grab bag. Yes. Oh, boy. No, wait, you already I, spoke. Uh, uh, All right, go ahead. All right. I'm getting really angry, Even though. My grandmother told me this very early on in my recovery. Yeah. They are our teachers. What are? They are our teachers. What? What? Yeah, people who get us oh, people who are nice. Yeah. I mean, that's what they say. It's... Well, that's that famous story of Gurdjieff. You know who he was? That, yeah, so, you know, he was had a kind of spiritual, philosophical uh, teachings that, and I think he had a community, I think it was in Paris in the early 20th century. And as the story goes, there was one person whose his community that just pissed everybody off. Nobody liked the guy. And one day the guy just stormed out, I've had enough of this place. And everybody was like, thank God he left. You know, now we can have some peace. And supposedly Gurdjieff went after him. You know, and people were like paying to be there. Or I don't, or at least they, you know, uh, presumably at least Gurdjieff went, look, come back. I'll pay you to, I'll pay you to come back and stay with us. Please, please come back. And people were like, why did you do that? Well, because that, very reason, because he was the one that stirred the pot, you know, he was the one that got everybody worked up so that they would have to look at their stuff. I mean, it's the same thing as the loving-kindness practice. Yeah, if you just do metta, oh, for my puppy, for my grandmother, oh, I feel so happy when I think of them. Yeah, well, that's a lot of spiritual growth, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's fine to feel good, and we should feel good when we're meditating. There's no, you know, it's not about, oh, I'm just going to work through this. But, you know. Yes. Yeah, hey. Uh, uh, I mean, you got to kind of do it with someone that you trust, but um, I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh who uh, wrote about it or something like that. I don't know. I might have heard from Matthew Brinsella. But, you know, when, when you when you got a resentment or you're fighting or you're arguing, you got something going on between two people to... To stop and pause and just, you know, I'm angry, I suffer, I need your help. <coughs> a lot of times that, you know, diffuses, gets at mm. the other person. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's humbling, you know, to do that and, and, and use the other person, you know, especially if you need their help. They're, you know, more likely they will, you know, kind of drop that, you know, it kind of just simmers things out. Yeah, and I have, that's nice. I've practiced it, I've tried it, and it, uh, and it does work. It does. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's the, the last thing that I would want to do, but I have practiced it, and, I, and, and it does work. Yeah. But there is people out there, you've got to trust, and there's people out there that would I don't know, see that as weakness. And you got oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you're not going to do that with your boss or something. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe I mean, that's an exaggeration. But yeah, uh, no. Uh, and, but I think that, you know, for most of us, in terms of the quality of our lives, it's, the, it's our intimate relationships the most difficult ones. I mean, you know, 
because there's the places where we're most vulnerable. And, we're, and, you know, if you have a fight with your boss or something, you can quit or you can, whatever, you know, it's like, screw it, I go home. But, you know, if, it, if, you're, you know, if your family situation or your living situation, you, you know, is, is in conflict... That's that's the hard, that's where the hard work is for me. I, I don't know. I, mean, I think I think that's fairly common, and and yeah, finding ways to uh, <laughs> to um, talk about that stuff. To uh, well, anyway, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to start talking about my wife too much. So, uh, <laughs> So, those who have been following along in my life, and, and if you've been coming here, that you've been forced to do that. Because, as, as I say, I teach myself, which you know is just because it's the only thing I know. So, um, you know, I teach out of my experience. And, and um, but anyway, on the out on the outer part of that, I was trying to write a a Buddhist recovery workbook. And I'm not really a workbook person, so it just never really came together. And I sent the first draft to my agent, and she was like, this isn't a book. And I was like, I know, it's not. It's just a bunch of stuff thrown together. <laughs> but, you know, I write because I love to write, and because it, it's, it's just like the same reason I do music, it's, and really why I teach. I mean, it's my work, but... But, um, you know, in, after I wrote One Breath at a Time, I wrote a novel that wasn't published, you know, and, you know, I just, because I just have to keep writing. So, um, not that I'm, like, you know, addicted to it or anything, but I just, I really like it. I could stop any time I want, but uh, I just like it. No. Um, sorry. So... So I am kind of looking for topics, and you know, and I've been like, oh, have I not written enough about recovery? Like, can we stop now? Um, but it did really come up to me this for me in this past spring. I was teaching a retreat, and one more time, I kind of noticed that in the middle of the retreat, there was this kind of heaviness to the to the room, to the group, and so I started doing some kind of more uplifting practices and things that I've worked with quite a bit. I even resorted to some laughter yoga, which uh, is really uh, silly, but it, it works generally. Um, but that got me thinking about writing about, about cultivating positive mind states, shall we say. Uh, and, um, and so I started to delve into writing on that, and I found that I had a lot to say. So I think there is going to be a book that's going to come out of this. There's, there's 50 pages so far, and, and it's, my agent has it now, and she loves it, so that's good. You want the agent to love it because they're not going to sell it otherwise. So I've been trying to find a title. Right now, this title is Happy, Joyous, and Free. And Wes Nisker was over at my house yesterday. If you know, he's a Dharma teacher, and we do a lot of stuff together, just music and stuff. He said, yeah, I was at Spirit Rock on Monday night. I went into the bookstore. Every new book by a Dharma teacher has happiness in the title. Don't put happiness in the title of your book. I was like, I know. Yeah. So I was thinking about calling it Not Unhappy. 
You know, I mean, the Buddha often talks in like these negative terms, non-ill will, non-clinging, you know, not unhappy. So I'm glad you like that. The subtitle, anyway, is A Buddhist Path to Contentment in Recovery. So I'm just going to read you a little bit of what is right now the introduction, and then I'm going to, I think, read a little bit uh, about my, where I kind of define happiness. I'm not really a happiness guy. In my teens, I found myself depressed and started to adopt a self-view as someone who was unhappy. Over the years, I wrote sad songs, which was actually kind of fun, commiserated with other depressives, which was quite comforting, and generally embraced depression and unhappiness as signs of my emotional sensitivity and realistic worldview. Nonetheless, some years ago, one of my Buddhist teachers started to talk about how we can cultivate positive mind states. This sounded more sophisticated than merely trying to be happy, and since I'd often been in negative mind states and had a distinct distaste for them, I decided to play along. Next thing I knew, I'd been hooked into reading a book called How We Choose to Be Happy, just the sort of thing I would normally avoid. And, lo and behold, the thing made sense. It was practical and it resonated with my Buddhist understanding of how things work. Mainly what I got from this book was the idea that I can impact how happy I am by how I live my life. It turns out I'm not fated to be unhappy. I can actually have an effect on my own mind states. Of course, people in recovery from addictions, people like me, already know that our behavior affects our moods and our overall sense of well-being. If we didn't realize it before we got clean and sober, we certainly saw it afterwards. Nonetheless, a recovery path like the 12 steps, while it's obviously about ridding ourselves of the things that make us unhappy, doesn't necessarily cultivate positive mind states. Admitting our powerlessness, writing a moral inventory, trying to abandon character defects, and making amends are very challenging tasks. They often bring up a lot of tough feelings about ourselves. Not surprisingly, after years, sometimes decades of addiction, it can be easy to get stuck in judging ourselves as bad people as people who are flawed and even undeserving of happiness. I want very much to help people avoid or get out of such ways of thinking. I want to help people see that in recovery there are often already many causes for happiness that we simply need to appreciate. And I want to help people see the ways they might still be undermining themselves and to find ways to let go of these negative habits, both behaviors and ways of thinking. Maybe we can't exactly choose to be happy, but if we are in recovery or moving towards recovery, I think we can do a lot to make happiness and joy and freedom a lot more likely. Those who know me might be chuckling right now because I can be pretty negative myself. I sometimes say that I can turn lemonade into lemons. But I've also worked... (laughs) That's a lot harder, believe me, you know. uh, But I've also worked hard at creating a happy life. The elements of happiness that I'm going to describe are integral to my life. I have plenty of bad moods and difficult moments, but fundamentally, I'm very contented with my life. And in fact, remembering how good my life is, despite the moods, is one of the keys to what I define as happiness. In this book, I want to give you ways to cultivate positive mind states and a happy life, but I didn't want to be too prescriptive Instead of writing exercises that tell you what to do to be happy, I am offering you reflections that I hope will help you to do a few things. 
First is to see how you are already happy. Second, to see the ways you get in the way of your own happiness. And third, imagine ways you can bring more happiness and contentment into your life. Happiness isn't a mood or a single static state. It's an evolving, dynamic, and multifaceted experience of life. Each of us must define happiness for ourselves and determine what will make us happy. Some people need loads of stimulation and a stream of new experiences, while others want simplicity and quiet. There's no one way or right way to be happy. So while I will suggest to you what areas of your life to focus on to bring happiness, and indeed suggest some things that need to be there to be happy, the first reflection I'm going to offer you is to define happiness for yourself. And then I go into explaining how to do the reflections and blah, 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 blah. So I want to skip ahead to... Hmm. Tempted to read a little bit of this. Uh, sorry. And there's, this is being recorded, so people all around the world are going to hear me moving pieces of paper, which is good, because they can practice patience, which is one of the paramitas. So uh, let, me, let me read a little bit of this kind of uh, opening piece. Um, it's interesting. I'm like, I know I'm just being blind because I'm not seeing what I'm wanting to see. Oh, there it is. Never mind. All right, I'm going to read two things, okay? We still have 20 minutes. Okay, what is happiness? When you hear the word happiness, you probably have your own sense of its meaning. Before I got sober, I thought it meant something like being in a good mood all the time. That's not how I define happiness now. In fact, several years ago, when stuck in a long period of difficult moods, depression, and irritability, I found myself saying, I'm depressed, but I'm not unhappy. What did that mean? What I was saying was that nothing was wrong with my life. I was healthy, had a loving family that I adored, and found great satisfaction in my work. I understood by that time in my life that troubling moods seemed to be a persistent, if intermittent, part of my life but they didn't impinge on the essential value and meaning of my life or the satisfaction I derived from my life. I think it has partly been this attitude towards moods that allowed me to be less controlled by them. So obviously I'm saying that happiness isn't a mood. That doesn't mean we can be happy without ever being in a good mood. Certainly having access to joyful and uplifting feelings on a regular basis is part of what I'd call happiness. But happiness is more than that. I think it includes these elements. One, I don't have the numbers, but maybe I should. Integration of values and behavior. That is, we live up to our own moral and ethical standards without shadow behaviors. We're not hiding any part of our lives from those close to us. This relates especially to sexuality as well as honesty. Two, satisfying interpersonal relationships, be they with friends, family, or co-workers. Three, satisfying work that both challenges us and allows us to use our intelligence and creativity to their fullest extent. Four, basic financial uh, security. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Uh, Five, a sense of connection to something greater than ourselves, be that a religious or spiritual connection or simply a connection with the human race or other beings or just nature. 
next is, I lost number count of the numbers, a sense of purpose and our own value. This may express itself through our work and how we see ourselves contributing to the world, or it may express itself in our relationships, the way we help and care for others. Finally, an element of fun in our lives. As adults, many of us neglect this vital element of happiness. For addicts in recovery, this list in some sense provides a parallel process to the 12 steps. The steps require us to face our moral and ethical lapses, and they also show us how living with integrity is so much more easeful than otherwise. Certainly, most of us have had to do a lot of work repairing interpersonal relationships. Most of us have had have to spend years getting our work lives sorted out and straightening out our finances, and spiritual connection is an essential part of the groundwork of recovery in the 12 steps. So that's my kind of setup, and I wound up... After I wrote that, I realized those were going to be the chapters. So the first chapter is called Walking the Talk, Integrating Values and Behavior. Um, So I'm just going to read this part called Giving Up. We'll see how far I go with it. I woke up happy on June 7th, 1985, the first time I'd felt good in the morning in at least six months. You wouldn't think I'd have been in a very positive state of mind after getting fired from a gig the night before and coming home to sleep off a hangover. But somewhere between the last beer and first light, I had given up. I'd given up drinking, I'd given up pot, I'd given up cocaine. Like any big letting go, this one had been a long time coming. I'd been trying to control my drinking and using for many, many years, and even as my addictions had persisted, I'd pursued spiritual answers to my life's problems. That morning, the battle between my addiction and my spiritual longing resolved itself in the deep and profound letting go of surrender. And in that surrender was great joy. The joy, the Buddha explains, is the result of letting go of craving and clinging. It's all right there in the Four Noble Truths, the starting point of all Buddha's teachings and insights. Clinging causes suffering. Letting go brings freedom. But for an addict, this concept can seem beyond our comprehension. When we're driven by the compulsion to drink and use, to eat or gamble, to control others or to be loved by them, the answer seems to be just the opposite. We need to try harder, strive more fiercely, grasp tighter. We have to have it, whatever it is, or we'll suffer. So there I was in my cottage in Venice Beach, California, a beautiful June morning, and I was smiling. Broke, unemployed, and happy. Once again, proving the Buddha's point that happiness doesn't come from stuff or from success or from pleasant experiences, but from our attitude, our relationship to what is. The specific cause of my happiness that morning was the feeling of relief that I didn't have to try to control my drinking and using anymore. I hadn't realized how much of a burden that effort was day by day, year after year, or day after day, year after year, going back to my early 20s. I was 35 at the time. Although I hadn't been able to imagine living without booze and pot, now, like a curtain being lifted, I saw clearly that there was nothing to fear and everything to gain, that getting loaded had stopped being fun a long time ago, and that the fear of stopping and the compulsion to keep using were all that had been left to keep me going in my addictions. Finally, having the courage, or whatever it was, to let go allowed me to enter into this moment of joy and freedom. When people talk at 12-step meetings about their early recovery, it's often about the struggles to stay clean, the problems they were faced with, the devastating wreckage of the past they had to face. All of this is real, 
but equally real is the great relief of letting go. The first principle of finding happiness is to notice it when it's here. When looking for joy and recovery, the first place we find it it is in this relief. That's why many people, when they discover the joy of dropping their addiction, start to give up other unhealthy habits, like smoking or eating lots of junk food. We may find ourselves taking a whole new approach to our lives, looking for things to give up. In the Buddhist tradition, this is called renunciation. And in the, although in our culture that term seems to have negative connotations of deprivation and asceticism, from the standpoint of the second noble truth, it's the clearest way to happiness. That's why the monastic life is built around simplicity, letting go of many of the supposed comforts of life. What the monastics know and what people in recovery have insight into is the truth that happiness doesn't come from the things we have, but the abandoning of the things we cling to the things that hold us down and capture our minds. But the letting go the Buddha emphasized the most wasn't really the material things or even our addictive habits, but our addiction to self. Just as the 12-step literature says, it is self-centeredness, self-obsession, self-seeking that causes us the most suffering. And it is facing this deepest human addiction that is our greatest challenge in the spiritual journey. To begin to face this challenge, the Buddha offers a simple practice Notice when you are thinking and let the thought go and come back to the breath. Thoughts are the source of selfing, and letting go of thoughts is the way to let go of self. When we experience the brief relief of dropping a thought, what we are experiencing is the joy of no self, of relinquishing our attachment to I. So while the road to recovery begins with giving up our drug or behavior of choice, this is where it is leading to giving up the self-centered focus of all our thoughts and actions. This is why the 12 steps resolve themselves with service, carrying the message, because that is about helping others and taking the focus off ourselves. So, that's unedited. But, um, that's my starting point, you know, that just giving up is the source of happiness, and remembering that, experiencing that. You know, it's why people say, like, I'm a grateful alcoholic, or why they say, you know, all I I need to do is just not drink and use today. And, you know, of course that's not enough for our lives, but but I do think that remembering that and appreciating that um, is a powerful um, practice, actually. It is a practice, and it's... And in terms of maintaining our recovery, of course, it's really uh, valuable to reflect on the joy of giving up and the suffering of clinging. Uh, Because, you know, when we forget that, then there's much more of a tendency to think that there might be some joy in using, a joy in acting out our addiction. So, Thank you for listening. Any thoughts or reflections? Edits? Yeah, hi. I liked it. I liked it. Could you dance to it? Would you? you have any, had a good beat? Well, no. you know, I've been reading Eckhart Tolle yeah. lately, and I really get stuck, and he's just always talking about letting go of time and not thinking of the past or the future. Such a struggle, just to live in the now with reading his book. And the stuff that you're talking about is a 
right, I win. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm... You know, I, I, for me, I, I can't read many spiritual books anymore. People give me stuff, and I read like a page. Um, I, so it's really important to me that what I write has a feeling of reality to it, and kind of. I mean, it's just there's so many like vague spiritual platitudes that are true that I can't wrap my head around or that just don't penetrate. So for me, you know, I, I mean, you know, I come out of a background of fiction writing, you know, which can be good and bad. But anyway, you know, it, in fiction writing, you, sh- you show, don't tell, right? You know, you don't just tell what the character's feeling or what happened. You, you, you dramatize the action and... and for me, if if I don't can't like kind of dramatize or really get into the juicy nitty gritty of experience, it's just to it, it, I can't hold on to it. I was just reading a so, someone gave me um, a new NA book, which I mean it's got great stuff in it, but it's just like it's just sentence after sentence of telling me stuff instead of showing me stuff, and it's really hard for me to... And, and partly I attribute that to my lack of intelligence. I mean, I, I just don't have a... I, I never was a very good reader. You know, I was, I was the youngest in my family, and, like, my older brothers were, like, massive readers. You know, I, my brother Pat, you know, in high school, he was reading the complete works of Alexander Dumas that we had in the library, and, you know, I'd be like you know, reading Richie Rich, you know, so, I, I mean, I just wasn't really that into reading, so I was surprised when I was the one in the family who became the writer. I always thought they were much smarter than me, but actually it turns out being smart kind of gets in the way of writing for a lot of people. Anyway, I'm rambling, see? Yeah. But that was criticizing myself, so. All right, next. Whew, let that go. I entertain myself at least. And I'm not getting paid. You know what I mean? So, you know, if you give me something, that's great. But you can't say, like, I didn't get my money's worth. You know? I mean, you can say from Spirit Rock, but, you, you know, you got your money's worth from Spirit Rock because you got the chair to sit in and... Okay. Oh, good. Of your two books up there, um, I'm going through recovery in early phases here and um, working the 12 steps. Which one do you think would be more uh, beneficial for me? Well, let me let me psychically go into your mind and tell you. No, that you know the um, the one breath at a time goes through all 12 steps. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 really the introduction to my teaching. Yeah, yeah. The second book is about higher power. And, and it's more Buddhist kind of oriented. It's a great book. It's underappreciated, you know. So, <laughs> so start, start with the first. We just get them both, you know. And can you want to, but then, you know, one breath at a time is usually the one that's, you know, people. Start with, yeah. And if you like that, get the second. Yes. Hi there. Uh, thank you for, for your talk. Um, I was wondering if, 
there's some com comparison or synchronicity between, say, you waking up happy mm -hmm. on that morning and the notion of the sort of two parts of self, the, there's the addict brain and the, the observer self or the, the, the non-addict part, which is able to look at your day and realize I can stop these thoughts from happening or I can see how the addict side is functioning and therefore have some control over it. And so regardless of my circumstances, it's a good day because I'm not giving into that side of me that's pushing to use. I don't understand. Okay. I mean, I, you know, I understand the words, but I can't quite... So, uh, I mean, the, the beginning of the question, is there a relationship between... Between, say, the... the oh, okay, the... You discussed how the priorities that we have or that we're taught are actually not necessarily valid. You mean like... Like money... External, no. external so happiness get yes. coming from acquiring things yeah. happiness coming from that mm -hmm. and when when dealing with addiction can happiness come from I apologize I'm having trouble explaining it um, mm. but for me it's it's seeing when I'm having a craving there's that part of me that wants to go out and use mm. There's that other part of me that knows it's a bad idea, but not only does it know it's a bad idea, it can mm -hmm. see the thought process of the side that's trying to tell me to use. Right. And so can that be also a part of, of, of the happiness of, of being, finally I've, I've got this grasp on this side. It's, yeah. it's not going to go yeah. away, Good. but I can, I can identify it and then in some way control it a little bit more. And regardless of what I might have physically or materially, that's a lifesaver. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what what I I would say, what I hear you talking about is kind of awareness, observing the arising of the craving, or uh, and that when you're relating to your experience from the place of awareness rather than being in the craving, that that's a very freeing thing. And, I mean, that's what, that's what Eckhart Tolle is talking about. That's what mindfulness is about. Yeah, so, so that's, what, that's very much what this practice is about. Yes, it's, it's about cultivating that, you could call it the kind of observing quality that just knows what's going on. Because when they're... When there's, uh, when we let go of all the noise, or when we don't identify with it, which is a, what you're kind of describing, you know, we're just observing it, then there's no clinging and there's no suffering going on there. The the um, pure awareness is a, you know, is is kind of a state of of transcendent happiness. It's not like, wow, you know, fun. It's, it's, it's a deep, deep peace that is what really the Buddha talked about as the most authentic form of happiness. Uh, 
So yeah, absolutely. That that's not only not only does that observing mind give us the opportunity to not be reactive to the craving, but it also, as you're saying, in and of itself contains happiness or is is joyful or not, jo- not joyful. I, that's not. I don't think that's the right word for it. But it it is. Um, there's a, a deep kind of pleasure uh, um, that comes from from being able to identify with that or connect with that and be with that uh, satisfaction. I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. So we're just about out of time. Um, so let's um, close with a. Uh, little bit of reflection. <coughs> Our practice starts inside, leads us inside. where we learn to let go and we learn to open our hearts. And as we transform in these ways, both through our practice and our recovery, we bring something precious to the world. We bring our sanity. We bring our kindness. We bring our openness, our ease. And when we can bring these qualities into our relationships, into our work, we begin to transform the world as well. In the Buddhist tradition, we dedicate our work and any benefit that comes from it to the awakening of all beings. May all beings be free from the suffering of addiction May all beings be happy, joyous, and free. Thank you for coming tonight. And... Um, I hope you forget all the silly things I said and remember one or two of the useful things. And uh, see you next month, if not sooner. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.